This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The stakes are incredibly high in a lawsuit before the Supreme Court. Billions of dollars for shareholders of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the push to end government control of the mortgage giants. Investors are challenging the 2012 agreements that let the federal government collect more than $300 billion in profits from Fannie and Freddie, the mortgage giants that keep the U.S. housing market humming. A big ask, as noted by several justices, including Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Clarence Thomas. The way in which the agency carries out its responsibility as conservator has a profound effect on the housing market and therefore a profound effect on ordinary people. Counsel, your remedial ask is a big one and, and uh, hard, hard for us to swallow, I know. But how would we um, unscramble the egg here? Uh, how do we put the parties back into uh, the position they were in prior to Amendment 3? And Chief Justice John Roberts seemed to completely reject the investors' argument that the companies had been nationalized and their stock was worthless. But I checked this morning and Fannie Mae was trading at $2.69 and Freddie Mac at $2.56. And your shares um, are not worthless. They're worth something, uh, presumably largely based on judgments about what the future holds. My guest is Jonathan Macy, a professor at Yale Law School. John, the investors were pressing multiple arguments, angling to have at least one survive so the case can move forward. Which were the most important legal issues? There are really two big legal issues in the case. The case essentially involves a complaint by shareholders that the government has taken away the entire value of their investment by implementing a rule change that instead of having dividends being paid to these shareholders, all the money is being swept out of these organizations and just sent directly to the treasury. And they have two basic sort of complaints. One is a corporate law complaint, which essentially says, you can't do this. This is an abuse of power. If you're a controlling shareholder like the government, you can't just transfer all the value of the company to yourself. And then the second claim is that the government bureaucracy that is running these organizations is unconstitutional. And as a consequence of that, the rules and decisions and actions that they take are invalid. This company, the bureaucracy, it's called the Federal Housing Finance Agency, we'll call it the FHFA. And the basic attack is the same attack that was used in a recent case called SELA Law Against Consumer Financial Protection Board that claimed that the CFPB was unconstitutional because the head of the agency couldn't be removed by the president. And this violated a separation of powers, constitutional principle. In that case involving the CFPB last term, the justices simply struck down a provision in the Dodd-Frank Act that protected the director from being fired and left the agency intact. So might the same thing happen here with the FHFA? We have a similar setup with the FHFA, which is that there's some obstacles to the president removing the head of this bureaucracy. The trick is, however, that It's a little bit easier to remove the head of the FHFA. The head of that agency can be removed 
for cause. So it's possible that that even though the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau structure was ruled unconstitutional, it's possible that the structure of this agency, just because of some details in the way that president's removal power is structured, this one might pass constitutional muster. Suppose the justices did declare the FHFA unconstitutional. Would the plaintiffs get the windfall remedy they're seeking? Now, the big problem that the plaintiffs have is even if this thing is ruled unconstitutional, the justices during the oral argument appeared both on the right and the left to be very skeptical that ruling the organization unconstitutional would mean that the actions that it's taken are invalidated. The justices seem to be inclined to the view that you could simply kind of save this organization from a constitutional perspective by saying, well, okay, the president gets to remove the head of it, so now it's constitutional. We don't have the separation of powers problem anymore, and the stuff that the agency did could still go forward. The relief that the plaintiffs in this case are asking for, the amount of money would be staggering if you took it to its logical conclusion, something like $124 billion. Well, do you see the relief that the plaintiffs are asking for as extreme? Well, you know, these are very big companies that are generating a lot of money. It's a lot. You know, there's a basis for the damages calculation. Basically, it's like a river of money, right? And the river of money, the plaintiffs are saying that river should be flowing to us. And the government's saying, no, this river's flowing to the U.S. Treasury. So if you divert the river, you know, you get to very big numbers and, you know, over $100 billion. Many of the justices seem concerned about the effect of striking down the restrictions on the president's ability to remove the FHFA director, the ripple effects. And Justices Samuel Alito and Elena Kagan compared it to calling into question the leadership structure of the Social Security Administration. Do you think it would follow that everything ever done by a Social Security Administrator or everything ever done by the FCC Uh, or one of the other multi-member commissions was void ab initio, they would all be wiped off the books? The SSA has been led by a single commissioner since 1994, and ever since then it's rendered 650,000 decisions every year. So that's about 17 million decisions. So are we really going to void all of those decisions? I don't think Justice Kagan's intervention it was particularly logical. There's no litigation involving the Social Security Administration, and nobody is arguing that the Social Security Administration is unconstitutional, so it doesn't really have anything to do with this. On the other hand, the general concern that at least with respect to this agency, we'd have to strike down everything it did. You know, that's a fair concern that people have. Justices on the left, I think Justice Sotomayor and on the right, Justice Gorsuch, have that concern. It's a legitimate concern. So how do you think the court will decide? I think the conservative bloc will decide the structure of this agency violates the separation of powers. They want a strong, unitary executive. But then they'll say that the agency will continue, the president will remove the head of it, and the regulations that have been promulgated will continue. A worst-case scenario, you could have you know, the newly constitutional structure 
as mandated by the Supreme Court, uh, will be in place, and the agency could just ratify all the stuff it did in terms of taking away these shareholders' money. Wasn't the unitary executive theory once considered pretty radical and only endorsed on the court by the late Justice Antonin Scalia? Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) we have a brave new world on the Supreme Court, right, with Amy Coney Barrett's appointment and a newly emboldened conservative bloc. Justice John Roberts is now viewed as a left-leaning centrist, at least against the backdrop of this court. So, yeah, I think the idea that we're plucking up old constitutional arguments that have been suggested by Justice Scalia and generally rejected or ignored are back at the center of the conversation. There's been a push under the Trump administration to release Fannie and Freddie from the government's control. And Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and FHFA Director Mark Calabria are in talks to amend the company's bailout agreements before President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. Do you agree with that push, and is it going anywhere? That is a very good question. I don't think it's going anywhere. Do I agree with it? You know, I think these organizations have been, not recently, but leading up to the 07-08 financial crisis, the amount of mismanagement and crony capitalism, the idea that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac almost went under, given a business structure that it seems just absolutely impermeable to failure, is really a testament just to how grotesquely mismanaged these organizations were. So I think it's very important, given the vital roles that these entities play in not just the housing market, but in the broader economy, that we have some kind of reasonable corporate governance and accountability. And it's definitely improved you know, since the reforms made in the wake of the financial crisis. But the trick is to get a lot of private sector kind of incentives working on these organizations but still have sort of soft government backing that gives the financing and the securities these entities issue some meaningful credibility in the marketplace. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jonathan. That's Professor Jonathan Macy of Yale Law School. Radio. This week, the Supreme Court considered whether families of Holocaust victims can sue foreign countries in U.S. courts for seizing property from Jewish citizens during World War II. In one case, the heirs of Jewish art dealers are suing Germany to recover a collection of medieval relics, which they say the Nazis forced the dealers to sell for 35% of its value. In another case, the families of Holocaust victims are suing Hungary for seizing property from Jewish citizens before sending them to death camps. Many of the justices were concerned that exercising jurisdiction over disputes involving foreign countries might open up the floodgates. Here's Justice Stephen Breyer. I mean, the list goes on and on of what violates international law, and many of them involve property. And if we can bring these kinds of actions here, well... So can these other countries do the same and accuse us? I mean, what about Japanese internment, which involved 30,000 people in World War II who were not American citizens? Other justices, like Elena Kagan, suggested the State Department should be making the decisions in cases like these. I mean, some might say that what's going on here is that the State Department is expecting the courts to do the difficult and sensitive and um, some might say dirty work for you. 
My guest is Mary Christine Sangaila, Chair of the Appellate Practice at Buckalter. To put this into context, MC, how much art transferred hands during World War II? About one-third of art holdings changed hands during World War II. So there is a lot of art that is impacted by these decisions, whether claims can be made or not. There's estimated to be at least 100,000 pieces worth over a billion dollars still unfound and out there that claimants could make claims on. So I think that's an important framework to understand the party's positions in these cases. There's potential floodgates of art moving once again after this if claims are allowed to be brought. And those who hold those pieces of art are very concerned about potentially losing them. So it isn't just these individual cases. I think that's a backdrop that both the litigants are thinking about, particularly the institutions. And I think also the court is wondering, you know, how many of these are we going to impact? Under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, plaintiffs are generally prohibited from suing foreign countries in U.S. courts. But the plaintiffs here are relying on an exception. Tell us about it. So the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act sets forth when and under what circumstances you can sue a foreign government in the United States. And the general principle is you can't. They're generally immune. But the issue here is whether there is an exception, in this case for expropriation, that would allow the government to be sued in U.S. federal court. One case is involving the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the other involving comity whether that survives and how that operates alongside the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. What would you say the main focus of the justices' questions was? A lot of the argument focused on who was suing and where everything happened and where the property was. So the argument in favor of immunity says, well, you know, these were actions in a foreign country, not involving the United States. There's sort of no other interest. We're talking about not U.S. citizens making the claim. In other words, this is totally a dispute that should be a creature of only one other country's interests and laws. And should we interfere with that? And part of the argument with regard to that would be yes, because this is a form of expropriation in connection with genocide, and we should be allowed to hear those kinds of claims in U.S. courts. That's a special kind of carve-out that Congress allowed for in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and, in fact, referenced Holocaust-era situations in particular. The Trump administration sided with Germany and Hungary in these cases, and there's a concern about potential foreign policy implications here. In the delicate context in which these cases occur, there's always that overlaying concern, which you also heard at argument, and which is why the U.S. government and State Department are always asked to weigh in in these cases, which is, are we interfering with foreign relations in some way? Are we putting our nose in where the U.S. should not be? So there's always that concern of foreign relations. And when you have those kinds of connections directly only to the other country and not the United States, you would say, yeah, we might have a stronger foreign relations concern there because there is no U.S. citizen. The piece of art is not in the United States. And so we'd have heightened concern about our relationship with other countries. And as the dissent in the D.C. Circuit indicated, there's also a concern that perhaps this could happen to us, right? If we 
allow suits against other countries that really don't have any direct connection territorially to the U.S. What will we say if we're, we're called into another country's court for a similar situation? And do we want that to happen in return to us? So there's all of those delicate considerations, even though we're dealing with a text of a statute written by the legislative branch. And I think that's another factor here, too, is not only where can you sue, but who decides whether you can sue there? There's a lot of debate with regard to whether the court should appropriately be making certain considerations or whether really it should be left to Congress. And we're interpreting what the executive branch says, both with regard to the language of the statute and also with some deference to what the executive branch through the State Department is also saying with regard to these cases. Well, several justices questioned why judges should be making these decisions, not diplomats. And did it seem as if the chief justice was sort of annoyed by the fact that the government was not saying the specific foreign policy issues that could arise in this case? Yes, I remember that uh, that portion of the argument. I think in particular, though, the chief uh, justice was uh, concerned because the um, they had asked for the U.S. government to weigh in. The Solicitor General was there, and this is the time to have a position, right, to be able to say, we've investigated things, whether we, uh, what our position is in this particular case, but moreover, um, what do you think about, uh, have you investigated whether you think there's an appropriate procedure in another country? What's your view about that procedure? And, and they have no view and they have, they, the claim is they don't have, haven't had any time to investigate that. That seems, I think, frustrating for the court because the court says, well, the time is now to investigate that because we are being asked to determine this question and the court needs your input now, not later. Hanging over the argument is, of course, you know, the atrocities that the Nazis committed and the fact that Jewish people's possessions were taken from them. Did any of the justices discuss that or express some kind of sympathy for that point? Yes, there were a, a, a few times where where that was referenced. Um, I would say, you know, directly by Justice Gorsuch at one point and um, indirectly, I think, by uh, Justice Thomas a few times with regard to the statelessness aspect of Jews in Germany, that, uh, that they, were, they were not uh, German citizens at that time. So, uh, so there was some reference to it, but uh, for those with significant amount of empathy, probably not enough reference to that, right? Um, I think that uh, that, that is, um, should be overhanging all of this much more significantly than it was during the argument, which was quite technical with, with regard to um, the immunity concerns. So I think that would be, uh, you know, a little bit disappointing uh, to folks who feel strongly about these issues. Um, and these issues do persist, I think, in, in part uh, because of the way the um, original, uh, the way the U.S. And, and Europe originally dealt with this from the beginning. So the U.S. 
was very uh, a significant moving force in the war and was able to recover a lot of this art. Instead of at that time, immediately after the war, setting up a, a uniform commission or setting up some uniform approach or returning that property to, to individual owners, the U.S. gave it back to the countries of origin, the best they could assess the country of origin. And then each of those countries was to set up th their own program and figure out how to do this. But what they really ended up doing was quite patchwork and insufficient in many cases and only covered certain types of, of objects. And even today, the European Parliament is still figuring out how they're, they're going to deal with this in potentially a more uniform way. So from all of that comes a patchwork where there, uh, there may not be other remedies. And so uh, people are trying to come to the United States for the United States to once again be the, the leader um, for justice in this arena. What statute of limitations applies in these cases? Well, that's a good question. Um, depending on what your, your claim is and what law you're bringing it under, that could vary. In the U.S., Congress, uh, through the HERE Act, attempted to make a uniform uh, extension of the statute of limitations period for a few years to allow all claims to be brought and aired on, you know, moving forward on the merits. And in uh, the Zuckerman case itself, the Second Circuit said, well, that didn't preclude common law uh, theories of bar. And so uh, we're going to invoke a, a state uh, common law theory with regard to barring this claim, and that that uh, overrides Congress's view under the HERE Act. So there's definitely efforts to make it uniform and to make that clear, but it really uh, still, even under the HERE Act in the U.S., depends on where you're bringing it and what law. So there were two cases here, one against Hungary and one against Germany. So could the Supreme Court rule differently in these cases? Could they grant one and not grant the other? Well, yes, that was the that was a lot of the interplay yesterday was, okay, what if we uh, find this way in one of the cases? What happens to what happens to your case? And that that in part depends on the interplay between the the two um the two legal bases for the claims. So one is the statutory foreign sovereign immunity act. The other is common law. If the court agrees that essentially the FSIA takes over the field and this question of comity was not enveloped within it and didn't, didn't pre-exist the FSIA, then those arguing for international comity as a ground to decline to hear the case they wouldn't prevail. But it's possible that the court could say, could split the baby <laughs> and, uh, and find for uh, the plaintiff in one case, but against the plaintiff in the other. It's not entirely clear from argument, but it seems that the court is interested in parity and how it treats uh, different kinds of litigants and different kinds of claims. That came up, for example, with comparing with regard to the alien tort statute, if if we're very cautious about uh, allowing corporations for extraterritorial conduct to be sued in the U.S., 
why should we make it easier to sue foreign sovereigns in the United States when we can't sue our own corporation for extraterritorial conduct? And then similarly, there was the question of, okay, well, the FSIA involves suing foreign governments. Uh, the international comedy applies applies also to private individuals. So what if we say you can't sue foreign governments, but you can sue um, private folks uh, under the uh, international comedy? So I think they're paying attention to that. Is there going to be some sort of some results that they're un uncomfortable with uh, between distinguishing between the different kinds of defendants? I think it's a very tough road for the claimants in both of these cases based on the arguments yesterday. But I think it's not without some hope that at least uh, one side of them will get to, to continue with their claims. In your mind, which plaintiffs have the strongest case? It's possible that the Germany claim and the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, I think, uh, is one that the court is perhaps more loath to allow to continue. It's possible that the Hungary action may be able to proceed if the, uh, as uh, Sarah Harrington was arguing yesterday, that whatever the international comedy standard is, that it only has a few prongs to it, that it's, it's narrow and you only consider a, cu a couple of items. Even the uh, lawyer on the other side, though, acknowledged it's possible that case could continue to survive even if the court found that the comedy doctrine applied if down the line it was discovered that, you know, Hungary actually has a terrible forum and you can't proceed there or recover anything and you could come back to the United States. That's not a satis fully satisfactory answer because that is a very long road and a lot of litigation for these claimants to go through, which seems unfair given the circumstances of the Holocaust to put that many hurdles in front of them. But that's often the case in a lot of these Holocaust cases, whether they're art recovery or other types, that is a very long road to victory. Thanks, MC. That's Mary Christine Sengaila of Buckalter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.